When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jimmy, welcome back to Real Vision. Thanks for having me, Ash. It's always a pleasure. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I'm so excited. This is our first time on camera together. I've interviewed you before, but I was off camera that time. It's a pleasure to be on camera with you. I should say, Jimmy, you're one of our favorite guests. Uh, you know, you have one of the broadest scopes uh, of anyone in the Bitcoin space, uh, from the philosophical to the pragmatic, uh, from the spiritual to the technical. This is like you span it all. Um, and with that, I should say, uh, you are the author, uh, one of the co-authors, I should say, of the recently published Thank God for Bitcoin, The Creation, Corruption, and Redemption uh, of Money, now available in hardcover, paperback, Kindle, and Audible edition. That's right. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a book focused on the moral argument for Bitcoin. And it's uh, it, it came out of uh, uh, you know a bunch of meetings that we did uh, over Zoom uh, during COVID. So uh, I feel like it was very productive, uh, given the unproductiveness of that uh, whole time. Yes, very much a difficult time. You did a wonderful uh, interview uh, or conversation, I should say, uh, with Robert Breedlove, uh, aired on Real Vision. Uh, actually, fittingly enough, last Christmas Day, December twenty fifth. Yeah, and uh, he's one of my co-authors, so we we had talked about a lot of the stuff that we talked about on camera before, um, and you know, getting into the depths of the morality of money and how it really is uh, a way in which uh, the state can take away money without direct taxation. Um, I, I, I thought it was an important part of uh, the moral uh, calculus that we have to actually do in order to figure out uh, where to invest and so on. Yeah, and I think it's so important to make that case. So many people uh, discuss, potentially outside of the community, discuss Bitcoin as though it's this almost amoral entity. Uh, and for you to have that context and that view uh, from a perspective of morality, I think is a fascinating one. You know, which brings me to a question that I've really wanted to ask you. So much of the foundation of how you think about uh, Bitcoin and the world is talking about value uh, as kind of an abstract proposition. What does that mean to you? Bitcoin is a store of value and value itself. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because it's uh, it's a metaphysical concept, right? The whole idea of value. Um, there there is sort of this Keynesian fallacy that value is intrinsic, that it's it, it it exists on its own without any humans involved or whatever. Value is subjective. It, it only has value according to what people. Um, assign it. And in that sense, it's an abstract thing. It's It doesn't necessarily exist in the real world as it were, uh, you know, value qua value. Um, right. Instead, what value is, is uh, it, it's uh, the utility that other people can derive out of it. Um, so water is obviously valuable to people because it helps them live. Um, you know, air is also valuable, uh, but they're also not very scarce and therefore it's uh, it's not very expensive. It has value in the sense that 
it's essential for living or for doing or for entertainment or whatever, uh, you know, uh, things that people might want to do with it. Uh, but scarcity plays a big role in value. And that that's something that money definitely uh, brings to the forefront as you think about what value actually is. Right. One of the questions I've always wanted to explore with you uh, is about your background, your journey into this space. Tell us a little bit uh, about how you got to be where you are today. Yeah, so I, I've been a programmer all my life. I, I got into computers back at back when I was nine years old. I didn't, I didn't even know what computers did. I just knew I wanted one, and I was one of those people. Yeah. And um, I, my dad got me the Commodore 16 back when I was nine years old. Um, and this is not the Commodore 64, which had all the games. Commodore 16 actually only had like three games on its platform. And one of, one of them was Visual Jack Attack, which I played all the time. And then the other two were uh, text-based games. So um, having immigrated as an eight-year-old to the United States, my English wasn't that great. So I, I couldn't play the text-based games. I spent a lot of time on the computer trying to learn how to program. And, uh, and my mom found me some uh, people to teach me how to program and so on. And that became my career, um, you know, after college and so on, uh, where, you know, I, I did, you know, something like 14 different startups, um, you know, in, in my career. Uh, many of them uh, did very badly. A few of them actually went public. So, you know, I, I did OK in that in that realm uh, as a programmer. Um, I got into Bitcoin back in 2011 after reading a Slashdot article. And if you don't know what Slashdot is, it's a website um, for you know tech geeks like me, uh, where you read about various things like a uh, new Linux distro is out, or uh, <laughs> you know here here's a new release of Python or something like that. And um, on I think it was February of 2011, almost 10, uh, exactly 10 years ago where I saw a headline that I couldn't really parse and it said, Bitcoin has reached dollar parity. I was like, what, what does that even mean? Like, is Bitcoin some like, uh, I, I don't know, like how could it be reached dollar parity? What does that even mean? So I read about it and uh, and learned about, you know, what, what that was and uh, eventually really, really got into it uh, in 2013 when I started contributing to open source projects that were related to Bitcoin and so on. Uh, but that that was the sort of like genesis of everything. And during that whole journey from 2008 to 2013, I was learning about Austrian economics as well. Right. Um, especially after the 2008 bailout where, you know, something like $850 billion, uh, you know, was pumped into the economy. And I, I couldn't understand why that needed to be the case or where that money came from or anything like that. So... I really started um, looking into, you know, the economy or money and how, how it all came about. So by the time I heard about Bitcoin in 2011, it, it sort of clicked. I, I understood it immediately because I was primed to do so from all of the economic uh, things that I had learned uh, since 2008. And um, as a result, it's, uh, you know, like, as you were saying, it, it's become sort of like almost all consuming. I, I, I've, uh, I, I've uh, gotten into Bitcoin in every aspect that I could. Um, you know, I'm teaching developers. I'm also like uh, doing speaking engagements, talking about like how it helps poor people in different countries, talking about the morality of money. I, um, I've thought about this a lot and I, and yeah, it's it's become um, you know I guess my life's work in some ways. Yeah, 
We should also say that you are the author of Programming Bitcoin, Learn How to Program Bitcoin from Scratch, which is an O'Reilly book. For people who are on the financial side, uh, O'Reilly books are like the hardest core tech publishing books. They're the place where really serious programmers go as a reference uh, to understand their craft. And it is a very high compliment that you uh, are the author of that book. Yeah, and that was something that uh, I, I approached O'Reilly with uh, as a result of doing my two-day course where I teach programmers all about how to program Bitcoin. And uh, you know that's how I got my start, but it's obviously expanded into a lot of different areas, including you know like the Little Bitcoin book, which is an educational book for people that don't know anything about Bitcoin to you know thank God for Bitcoin, which is sort of like intermingling my Christianity with Bitcoin, which I totally did not expect. But um, you know it, it's it sort of kind of happened, and you know uh, thank God that it's happened. Uh, it's it's been quite the journey for certain. Yeah. As we talk about the journey, I'm curious, uh, how did your very serious programming background influence your view uh, of economics when you came into it? Because it sounds like, uh, as you tell the story, that you weren't someone who had a traditional economics background. You were discovering this uh, as you went down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think programming definitely helped me in the sense that you, you have to know the primitives in programming in order to do anything. Right? Like you have to know, OK, how, how does, you know, how do how does this language handle like memory or, you know, how do you do like a for loop or how do you do if statements and how do you uh, write functions and is it object oriented, all, all of that. Um, so, you know, approaching economics, um, like learning sort of uh, the traditional model, which is based on macro, especially, it, it's just sort of like, okay, well, here's the money supply and here's this PV equals MQ equation. And it's like, okay, that, it doesn't say anything about the primitives <laughs> at all. And uh, so like when, it, when I um, started reading about economics, none of, none of the sort of traditional economics, uh, the Keynesian economics really made any sense to me because it didn't build on sort of like a solid foundation. It was just sort of like, here's what we think the um, you know, whole economic activity is and here's how we measure it. It's like, well, these numbers don't mean anything because they're mixing good numbers with bad numbers and saying that the accumulation somehow averages out. There, there's no way you can know, know things like that. And thinking as a programmer, thinking adversarially, I was thinking, okay, well, then that could get game, that could get game, that that wouldn't work. And um, and sure enough, the, the more I've studied economics, the more I've realized like every number gets game for the benefit of those that it benefits, right? Like, so the CPI number, for example, is a very good one. Lynn Alden has a very long article that I just read about inflation. Um, and it, it goes through, you know, all of the different ways in which that number is manip manipulated, including the hedonic adjustment, the hedonic quality adjustment, the, yeah. um, you know, various goods that are uh, put in and out. Uh, GDP is another number that's uh, heavily manipulated for the sake of those in power and so on. So um, for me, uh, looking at things from sort of that weird macro perspective that doesn't really have first principles per se, but it's just sort of like looking at the world and saying, okay, well, here's what we think is actually right. Um, didn't make much sense, but you know, Austrian economics is very much from first principles. And it, uh, it was about figuring out, okay, well, here are the people that benefit, who are the people that are getting hurt? What, what, what's actually happening in some here? Um, 
and that that made a lot more sense to me. Um, and I, I can definitely say like Rothbard and Mises and you know uh, Henry Hazlitt and even Hayek to some degree, like they they've all influenced me in thinking from first principles and going through um, sort of like the incentive scenarios um, in, in the same way that I would as a programmer try to figure out, okay, well, here's how this particular program gets used and you know like what can people do with it and so on. So it, it's uh, it, it definitely made me think of economics in a very different way than the traditional economists, I guess. Yeah. So with that as the foundation, Jimmy, I'm sure most of our viewers uh, already know about you and understand your background in philosophy. But for those who do not, tell us a little bit of uh, the 50,000 foot overview of how you think about Bitcoin, why you think it's important and what role you see it playing uh, in the world. Yeah. So the 50,000 foot view is that this, uh, you know, Bitcoin is an excellent store of value um, in the sense that uh, it stores value over time. Um, it's, it also happens to be pretty good at transferring value over space. Um, final settlement in 10, 10 minutes is, uh, you know, halfway around the world is amazing. Uh, but it's really about storing value over time. And if you look at the current monetary system, there aren't very many good places to store value over time. Um, the current sort of uh, ideology of those in power is to make sure that the money is flowing through the economy, right? The, uh, make sure that the velocity of money is fast enough that everyone, uh, somehow that, that creates wealth. Um, and if you have a place where you can store money, then that money is parked. It's not really moving. And for them, that's that's bad. So they purposefully make it so that there aren't that many good places to store uh, value. Um, the, tr the traditional places to store value are real estate, stocks, and gold. Um, and all three of them have uh, some flaws to them. So real estate has enormous transaction costs, like six, five, six percent every time you want to buy and sell. Um, stocks uh, require an insane amount of research. If you want to figure out which stock to buy, you you have to not just look at their balance sheet, but the history of like their executive team and all, all this, you know, the their competitors and all this other stuff that Honestly, most people are probably going to outsource to like a credit rating agency or to a research report uh, or, or something to that degree. Um, gold uh, is centralized and uh, therefore it's fractionally lent, uh, which means that there's a lot of gold that doesn't exist that's uh, probably, probably trading in the market and so on. Um, with Bitcoin, you get something that is that has low transa uh, transaction costs, um, at least relative to something like real estate or stocks and things like that. Um, it's also very, uh, very easy because you, you don't have to choose among hundreds and hundreds. Uh, we could talk about altcoins later, but, you know, you, you can just uh, buy Bitcoin. It's fungible. The same um, Bitcoin that a Silicon Valley insider with the best deal flow gets, um, you know, the Indonesian farmer gets. Um, it's right. it's not like gold in that it's centralized and, you know, there it's fractionally lent. Instead, you can possess it yourself. It's a bearer instrument. So um, it's better than all of those other things. So the 50,000 foot macro view is that this is a way to save. It's a savings technology. It's a way to store value over a long period of time. Um, and that that allows us to actually like focus on the future. If, if the money is continually degrading, 
Um, or if you have to constantly invest or research things or worry about transaction costs to even just keep your money, um, that's a lot of effort not spent providing goods and services to the market. So the 50,000 foot view is that it's really civilization building technology. It, it helps people to um, be creative uh, instead of just sort of moving money around, which uh, oftentimes investing ends up being. Yeah. Jimmy, what might the world look like uh, in five or 10 years uh, if Bitcoin continues to follow the trajectory uh, that you uh, invest in it in terms of the uh, in terms of the broader philosophical upside uh, for the asset? Yeah, so uh, five, 10 years from now, we, we, we don't really know exactly what the world will look like, but I, here, here's my speculation. Um, I suspect that a lot more people will be storing value in Bitcoin and sort of like taking off uh, um, the burden of investing. And th this is a burden that anyone that has any amount of wealth has. And honestly, this, this is part of what you're trying to provide as at Real Vision is to provide right. value to investors so that they could at least navigate this investing waters uh, without... Uh, without too much trouble, right? Like it, it's a it's a way to sort of shortcut uh, some some of the heavy work that goes into investing, which is research and knowing your investment and figuring out you know which sectors are hot, which ones are not, and everything else. Um, instead of putting so much energy into that, uh, you know the the people that have acquired this wealth, whether through startups or through um, you know, what, whatever that it is that they've done, they can instead put their productive capacity into creating again, uh, instead of, you know, trying to keep their wealth or spending all their energy keeping their wealth, they can create new goods and services and products into the economy um, and make make cooler stuff, right? Uh, so instead of Bill Gates right now, who, you know, uh, obviously created Microsoft and, uh, you know, uh, you know, created an entire ecosystem and so on and many products, um, like just sort of like sitting around trying to like, uh, from what I hear, he was buying land all over the country and, you know, uh, doing all the these different investments as a way to preserve his wealth. Uh, instead, he could he could go and create more stuff that other people might want, right? Instead of, you know, just uh, sort of sitting around trying to invest. And th this is something that I've noticed about a lot of people that have gotten rich, is that they spend all of their time like investing, right? They 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 graduate to angel investing or being a limited partner in a venture capital firm or a hedge fund or something like that. Um, it's it, it, instead of putting their productive capacity into something that's awesome, they're they're putting their productive capacity into just keeping what they're they're doing. Oh, this is what I call sort of the fiat treadmill. You have to run to stand still, which is kind of horrible. So I have to ask, Jimmy, you mentioned altcoins. Uh, we're recording here uh, on the morning of Monday, May 10th, which is the Monday after Elon Musk was on Saturday Night Live talking about Dogecoin. So what is your view of Dogecoin? Dogecoin from the view of a Bitcoiner. Yeah, so Dogecoin is very interesting because it was created to be sort of like a fun meme currency, right? It, it's not serious at all. It doesn't pretend to be uh, something revolutionary for some industry or for some use case. Most other coins that came out in that era um, usually had some sort of tagline like, hey, uh, we're going to be a faster Bitcoin or we're going to be a uh, you know more... 
um, you know, a, a larger supply Bitcoin. We're going to have a different monetary policy. We're going to um, use this coin for this industry. We're going to do this or that. Or there, there was usually some purpose to the coin. This one clearly was not meant to be that, right? It, it, it was made as a joke. Um, there, there's a little dog, um, I, I think it's a Shibu or something like that. Uh, that that's uh, sort of the icon for it. And, you know, they, they have weird catchphrases like such wow or something like that uh, to express, uh, you know, the, the joke around the whole currency. It's a joke currency. Um, but in a sense, it, it, it's very appropriate sort of to this millennial generation, because as we saw with GameStop, AMC and all these, uh, you know, even Hertz and, and some others, um, they, their whole uh, shtick is um, it, it, it's uh, putting the irrational into investing. Right. It, it's not about fundamental value anymore. And uh, and, and I think that's what Dogecoin kind of shows is that. It never was about the fundamental value, especially with a lot of these altcoins. It, it, it was never about what they claimed that they would be able to do. It was always about the token. It was always about getting people interested. It was always about marketing. Uh, and Dogecoin is is sort of like the apex of, of this ridiculousness where you have no fundamental whatsoever. There's no white paper. There's no no like given reasons even for why it's pumping. It pumps because people want it to pump, uh, much like what happened with Hertz and GameStop and AMC. Uh, so it, in that sense, it's very appropriate that it, it is going up because I, I think it's showing all coins to be um, you know, the, the speculative vehicle where it's really more of a gamble than anything else. I, I mean, I have heard on Clubhouse and other places, people arguing and saying, well, you know, Elon might uh, take over Doge and make it like the greatest currency ever. And that's why I'm investing in it. Um, I, I'm sure there are people that are kind of thinking in that direction. But for me, it, it never was like that. If you look at the actual technical uh, aspects of Dogecoin, it, it hasn't had any updates in like over a year and a half, something like that. Uh, it's a fork of Litecoin. It's merge mine with Litecoin. It doesn't have any of the upgrades uh, of Bitcoin. At least Litecoin has SegWit. Uh, you know, Dogecoin doesn't have SegWit. It's certainly not going to get taproot uh, if it doesn't have SegWit even. Uh, and you know, no one's really maintaining it. It's it's just sort of this currency that's there, kind of as a meme. Uh, much like Hertz as a bankrupt stock was going up, uh, it's it's kind of like a bankrupt crypto that's got no maintenance whatsoever. That's going up because people wanted to. And I would uh, I would say what Kane said many uh, a long time ago: the market can stay irrational longer than than you can say solvent. So be careful shorting. But at the same time, I, I think it, it really is like the height of irrationality that this coin of all things is, you know, going to some insane market cap. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Yeah. 
Very well said. And also the perfect uh, segue into what I wanted to chat about next, uh, which is I think one of the biggest misconceptions uh, out there about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is this like static entity that somehow uh, stuck in 11 years ago and that it's not changing. Uh, And of course, that's not true. Uh, Very few people are as comfortable talking about and as knowledgeable uh, about the inner workings of what's happening in Bitcoin Core. Give us a little bit of an update uh, for where Bitcoin is right now and what's coming, as you mentioned, uh, in Taproot, especially for people uh, who are less technically inclined, who are just trying to get the 50,000 foot overview of what's actually happening. Yeah, so uh, Bitcoin has had many different um, sort of backwards compatible upgrades over the years, um, starting with uh, pay to script hash, check lock time verify, check sequence verify, um, you know, SegWit, obviously, and this upcoming one, which is Taproot. And Taproot uh, encompasses a bunch of different technologies in one uh, backwards compatible upgrade. Um, so we have, for example, Schnorr signatures. This is a an older algorithm than ECDSA, which is being used in uh, in in Bitcoin right now. Uh, but the reason why Satoshi chose ECDSA, or at least why it's speculated Satoshi used ECDSA rather than Schnorr, is because Schnorr was under patent at that point. It, the patent expired, I think, sometime. Uh, like maybe in the early teens, something like that. Um, but uh, so it can now be freely used by anybody. And that's that's part of the upgrade. Um, and Schnorr is not only just technically simpler, it also allows for something called signature aggregation and key aggregation, uh, which um, is uh, an area of academic research. Um, and, you know, from a 50,000 foot view, uh, what that means is that you get more privacy. So uh, right now, uh, you know, uh, you, you can tell which ones are multi-sig versus single sig by just looking on chain, right? Like uh, all, all that, um, the security of your Bitcoin is more or less expressed in the type of address you have. So it used to be that addresses that started with a one were single sig addresses um, and the addresses that started with a three were probably multi-sig addresses. Um, and with SegWit, uh, you know, that changed to BC, uh, the addresses that start with BC1 but are a certain number of characters versus addresses that start with a BC1 and are a, a little bit longer. Uh, the shorter one is uh, is uh, single sig and the longer one is probably multi-sig. Uh, with Schnorr signatures and Taproot, what you get are both of them look exactly the same. So the an attacker can't necessarily know, okay, well, this one's a single sig. I'm going to go and you know rob that guy's house and I'll, I'll be able to take his Bitcoin or something like that. Um, so there, there's a security upgrade there. Um, there's also a lot of implications for Lightning Network. Uh, it, it makes the entire running of Lightning a lot easier. Um, it also increases... Um, uh, the transaction byte efficiency. So you can put transactions in less bytes, uh, which means that you can have more transactions per block, increasing throughput a little bit. Um, you also have something called a mass tree, uh, which allows you to uh, reveal, uh, you can have many different conditions, for example, for unlocking your Bitcoin. So you can have like seven different conditions instead of one or two or three um, well, you could you could have seven different conditions right now. It's just that you have to reveal them all every time you spend. So you can have, for example, two of two of these people, 
three of five of these people, seven of nine of these people, and so on. Um, you, you would have to reveal all of that if you were to do it currently. Uh, with Taproot, what you get is the ability to say, okay, well, whatever I unlock with, that's the only thing that I'm going to reveal. If it was two of two of these people, that's all I reveal. If it was three of five of these people, then that's all I reveal and so on. So uh, there are security upgrades, there are utility upgrades, there are um, efficiency upgrades. Um, th those would be the main ones that I would say are uh, the main things in Taproot. And when you talk about efficiency, we're generally talking about speed. Uh, what are the implications for the network itself uh, with the potential uh, upgrades on the speed side? Well, it, it would be more space than speed, I would say. Um, and, uh, and that means that you get slightly lower fees with the same amount of transactions. Um, and ultimately, this, uh, this is a setup for the next soft work, which I think will be even more important, uh, which would be something like cross-input signature aggregation. Now, what, what, what does that mean? Um, currently, what you get, uh, if you want to sort of get more privacy on your Bitcoin, what you uh, can do are, there's a variety of protocols, but one of them is called CoinJoin. Mm. And what CoinJoin does is you have uh, you know one or more inputs and one or more outputs in a giant transaction that you put in with everybody else. So you're sort of mixing uh, you, you know your money together. So uh, think of it like everyone has like a hundred dollar bill and you put it all into one pile and you take somebody else's uh, you know hundred dollar bill. That way, like it's not traceable and so on. Uh, that that's what CoinJoin is like. Uh, with with cross input signature aggregation, it economically incentivizes coin joining. So, by default, because of that economic incentive, uh, what you get is this ability to um, you know coin join at a discount to you know doing something in the clear. So more people will coin join, therefore Bitcoin will become a lot more private, um, and that's something that will come as a result of. Uh, the next soft fork after this one, but this this soft fork needs to happen first because uh, cross input signature aggregation relies on Schnorr signatures, and that's one of the things that uh, that this current one needs to put in. Yeah. So it's very much this sort of incremental buildup of the technologies that are foundational, increasing the functionality uh, to do potentially greater things as we move forward. Yeah, it, it's definitely uh, a slow, but you know, steady process. Uh, a lot of people tend to think of technology in terms of like move fast and break things, that famous quote from Mark Zuckerberg. Um, that is not what you want to do with people's money. If you do that with people's money, you get all sorts of hacks and, uh, you know, exploits and so on. I, I mean, I, I, we seem to hear about some sort of DeFi exploit every week in some, uh, on some uh, weird token or something like that, where, you know, $30 million in network value is lost or, or, or something to that degree. That's, that's what happens when you move fast with, with that stuff. You, you don't want to put people in that position. So uh, a lot of the Bitcoin upgrades um, tend to happen fairly slowly uh, because you, you want to make sure that everything is thought of. You, um, and these programmers are very good at thinking of like the 1% scenarios where, uh, you know, okay, all right, this might happen. If this person does this, 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 and this, then they might be able to exploit things. Um, that sort of stuff is happening all the time on DeFi. You know, like people are thinking of ways to exploit these contracts for their own benefit and screw over some people at the expense of others um, and, and, and so on. So with Bitcoin, you, you get this 
a very significant uh, amount of review on every uh, single aspect of the upgrade. Um, and that can often take times take years, right? Like it, it, you have to think of it more like OS programming or something like that. Uh, you know, they don't uh, produce new major versions of Windows every week. That's not what they do. Um, they they do that like every few years or Mac OS or Android or whatever. Um, you, it, it takes a lot of effort and time to make sure that there aren't security vulnerabilities and so on. Um, and, and, you know, for that reason, it moves slowly. Um, it might not be to the satisfaction of people that are uh, impatient, but... In, in a sense, uh, you know, security is is extremely important for an asset so valuable. So it's uh, it, it's the right way, I think, to go about um, secure uh, go about like producing new features and so on. Right. You know, one of the other things that you mentioned uh, was the Lightning Network, which is a layer two solution uh, as a payments protocol. Talk a little bit about the Lightning Network and what you see as its potential significance as it begins to gather steam. Yeah, so the Lightning Network is uh, is a way is a layer two, um, and the way I describe it is um, you can have these channels open, and channels are really just transactions uh, on the Bitcoin ledger, except. Uh, if you and I, Ash, were uh, were trading um, Bitcoin back and forth, say we're doing a lot of business, uh, and you know you're you're buying stuff from me, I'm buying stuff from you, um, and we do like a hundred transactions, we could put one hundred different transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain, but that would be kind of in inefficient. We could do what uh, I guess uh, you know invest or traders call technical netting, right? Like we can just say, okay, well. I pay uh, all all the uh, fifty payments that I paid you um, amount to this many bitcoins, and all the fifty payments that you made me amount to this many bitcoins. Let's just subtract one from the other, and you have that. That's what a channel is. It's it's one transaction on the network that represents a lot of other transactions. Now, if I have a channel with you and you have a channel with um, Alex or something like that, then what you can do is. Uh, what I can do is I can pay Alex through you, and that's that becomes that's the start of a network. Um, you can you can have uh, if Alex has a, another channel with Nico, I can also pay Nico by going through both you and Alex. Um, we just have to net it out and so on. And that that's essentially what the Lightning Network is. It's a it's a network for payments where you run through various nodes and so on, and you can you can pay. And uh, receive payment from uh, from various people on the network using this network. Um, so, what what are the implications of Lightning? Well, first of all, it's it's really nice because you can pay people instantly as long as you're connected to the other person on the network and there's enough channel capacity. Um, it's uh, it's a, uh, also uh, an area of research because um, you know decentralized networks like this haven't really been studied that much uh, and. You know, making sure that everything works, uh, and you know, optimizing certain things. It, it turns out that these are some significant questions in graph theory and uh, networks, and and so on. Right. Uh, but uh, looking forward, what does it mean, or how how is this going to develop? I think we're starting to see what I would call sort of layer three apps. These are apps that are built on top of the Bitcoin. Uh, 
Lightning Network. Um, so uh, Sphinx Chat is something that is super interesting and it's built on top of Lightning. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sure many of your uh, viewers have have uh, different messaging apps, right? They, they have like WhatsApp or um, you know, Signal or Telegram or something. Um, they're all messaging apps, uh, and but what they don't have is some sort of like native payment layer. And as a right. result, you get a lot of spam, right? And this this is the case in almost anything that doesn't cost anything because when it's free, then people start exploiting it uh, for their own benefit. Uh, well, what Sphinx does is it makes uh, it puts money back into the equation because it's built on top of the Lightning Network. So, for example, I can create a chat room that's open to anyone. As long as that that filters out all the bots, right? Like the the people uh, that that are going to do that, and even if they do pay and get it get into this this tribe or whatever, um, you have the option of making people stake their bitcoins in order to comment into the group. So um, if you're if you're saying something, uh, what you have to do is stake some number of sats. So stake like a hundred sats. And you get the 100 sats back after eight hours if your comment was deemed to be not spam, which is great. But if it is deemed to be spam, then the administrators of that group take it. So in a way, it disincentivizes spamming in these groups, which honestly could be very functional, right? Like it's, it's, a, it's a way to filter the con con uh, conversation with money. Uh, imagine if they did something like that for Twitter. Uh, I, like how much better would Twitter be or how much better would Facebook be or how much better would a lot of these platforms be if you had this, uh, this natural money layer that filters uh, for this stuff. Yeah, you don't have to worry about brigading or civil attacks or all sorts of these uh, uh, these vulnerabilities that show up in these communities where you have uh, you know, bots, essentially, people that are trying to influence uh, things to be a certain way. Um, instead, you just have money. If they want to do that, yeah, great, that's fine. But you're going to have to spend a lot of money and it costs them something instead of costing them very little in, uh, in creating a bot and so on. So for me, uh, the Lightning Network, as I've said in other places, I think is uh, the web that, the decentralized web that we always wanted. Um, and mm -hmm. th this is what the internet was supposed to be very early on was some sort of really decentralized network where you know there weren't like these silos and so on, uh, but it's evolved to where we have all of these wall gardens that are controlled by these central entities like Facebook and Google and Twitter and all, all of these. Instead, you, you get real decentralized networks that people create on, the, on their own. Uh, and when you have centralized entities, you have problems like censorship and bots and uh, you know people gaming the system to, um, to gain influence and so on. Um, instead, it becomes much more of a, a, a fair system uh, that isn't subject to some centralized control and so on. Yeah, and that's one of the things that markets is, are so good at doing is setting up these decentralized systems where you can efficiently uh, create things like supply and demand uh, and have a balancing mechanism in price uh, to sort them out, which is a, a very uh, Austrian concept. Yeah, and price price is a wonderful thing because it, it it gives you a signal about how much demand there is, and if there's uh, you know if the price is high, it brings in more producers. It it 
gives the market what it wants. Uh, it gives people what they want instead of centralized controllers just sort of guessing what they might want. I mean, how many times have you seen like Facebook change something and everyone complain? Google change something, everyone complain. Twitter change something, everyone complain. They don't really know. They're they're just sort of guessing. Maybe they do consumer surveys and so on. But in a decentralized web, everyone tries something different, and eventually right. you come to uh, sort of like a market uh, that that understands what, like the market's smarter than any individual or even any single corporation. And I think that, you know, it, it could produce a lot more innovation that way uh, through a truly decentralized web. Yeah. I think this is such a fascinating point. One of the questions that always comes up uh, from my very smart finance friends who are maybe a little bit skeptical uh, about the new decentralized world that's getting built is, well, why do I need that? I don't understand. I don't understand what the benefit is for me. And I think that the, the framework that we're talking about here uh, is one that is about, about organic demand uh, actually being satisfied with organic supply. Uh, so that it comes back to when you think about the, the sort of Soviet style economics, right? When you had uh, a bureaucrat somewhere in Moscow or Pyongyang trying to plan uh, grain distribution, for example, uh, and it fails miserably. Whereas uh, here in the Western world, we're fortunate enough to live in a system uh, where markets are what sets things. And when you go into a store, uh, the goods that you want to buy are there at hopefully a price that you can afford uh, because it's in the interest of the, of the suppliers as well as in the interest of the consumers to meet in the middle and have a way for that to uh, distribution to take place. Yeah, and that market dynamic is a wonderful thing. It's it's what builds civilization. It's what gets people to create goods and services. It's based on what other people are demanding. And it, it, when you produce something that the market wants, it's a great feeling. It's it, it, like I, I suspect that a lot of like the depression and gloominess and uh, you know bad feelings in the world are due to people that are essentially not producing what the market wants. You know, they're doing some bureaucratic rent-seeking job that doesn't add anything to anyone. And uh, and they're extremely dissatisfied and suffering from depression or addiction or something else as a result because they're, they know deep in their heart that they're not contributing anything. Uh, but, you know, when you have, uh, you know, pure markets and, uh, and you know, demand by uh, people, you, you don't have to go to those things because, uh, you know, providing something to other people is deeply satisfactory at a human a human level, and it's it's something that people crave doing. It it feels really good when you provide something to someone that they wanted, and they're paying you for it. I mean, how wonderful is that? Um, and yet, you know, it's it's kind of disparaged by uh, by certain people that don't understand the power of decentralization or the evil of centralization. Um, in many ways, if you are living under a centralized system, you are beholden to that authority and you are their slave, whether you know it or not. Um, you know, a, a lot of people don't realize just how much power the centralized entity has over them. Although we're starting to get the hint because, you know, like, a lot of these tech giants, for example, are becoming deeply unpopular as uh, as people are realizing just how much they are abusing um, their power for their own profit and at the detriment of their users and so on. Um, you know, as as they say, if it's free, you're probably the product, and this is certainly true of every uh, you know you know, free platform like Twitter or Google or whatever, you're, you're, you're being sold, right? You're, you're the product. It's, you're being sold to the advertisers. The advertisers are, are, are their real customers. So um, in a sense, having a, a decentralized market economy allows us 
to um, get what we really want at a, a at a better price um, in, instead of being subject to only a few choices. It gives us more choice. It gives us better um, uh, better goods, better quality goods. Uh, it, it, it probably puts us closer to the actual producer um, uh, of the good or service than sort of these like giant faceless corporations that are providing it for us. So I'm very optimistic about a decentralized future. I think it brings us closer in community. It, 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 and I think it ultimately leads to civilization flourishing. Yeah. Jimmy, that's fascinating and such a compelling vision of the world. I'm curious, how long do you think it will take us to get there? What might that path look like? What's happening today uh, that are the initial steps that people are taking down that road? Mm. Well, I mean, Bitcoin is certainly one of the one of the paths uh, that uh, that we have towards uh, going to a more decentralized world. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, the world is largely centralized around these things that we call governments. Um, so there's no reason why the United States uh, is one giant country or it should be like it, it should be lots of smaller uh, states because many of them don't even agree with each other. I, I, I like local autonomy is a good thing. And that used to be the historical norm until fiat money came along and sort of consolidated a lot of different um, you know, territories into one giant one. Um, so I, I suspect that it'll, it'll take a long time uh, for everything to sort of collapse. I, I, and I am, a I, I'm going to be a little bit pessimistic here in the sense that I think it'll get worse before it gets better. Uh, and we're starting to see some of that uh, happen with uh, the, the money printing that's happened in the past year. Um, I think fiat money will sort of die at some point um, and, People will go back to sound money because harder money is um, better for storing value. And people like storing value, like being able to keep the value that they create. Um, but that that will take a while. Um, it, it could take five years. It could take 50 years. I'm not really sure. Um, but the path that by which we get there, I think, involves Bitcoin uh, for certain because it is the way in which we can save and opt out of the current system. And this is one of the messages in the book, Thank God for Bitcoin. Um, you know, uh, the, the thing that frustrated us when we read other books of a similar genre uh, was that they more or less uh, said, okay, uh, it, now that you know all of these bad things about the current monetary system, here's what we need to do. We need to get a political action committee together and get enough people to vote to go back to the gold standard. And we're like, that's not going to happen. There's, <laughs> there's no way that anyone's going to vote for that or we're going to be able to convince enough people. Instead, you know, with Bitcoin, you, you, you have this ability to just opt out on your own. You don't have to be... Uh, getting everybody else on the gold standard. It'll just sort of happen naturally because it is a better money. It's more convenient. It's better to store and it, it'll be, um, you know, it'll have more utility and so on. Um, so as, as a result of that, uh, I, I think the economy sort of slowly Bitcoinizes. Uh, we're, we're sort of seeing that to some degree right now. Michael Saylor is Bitcoinizing his company, for example. Uh, a large part of the value of his company right now is the Bitcoin that his company is holding. Um, Tesla obviously has some, and uh, there's a bunch of other companies that are going to be doing similar things. Um, and this is the natural market dynamic, uh, is that when there's little to no yield anywhere, 
um, people go and look for yield. And uh, there's a lot of yield in Bitcoin right now, um, even like a futures uh, cash and carry trade um, is returning something like 40% APR. So exposure to this asset is becoming sort of the norm. And as more companies become more and more Bitcoinized, um, then, you know, instead of the crazy inflated asset, inflated valuations that these stocks have, they they come closer to reality. Um, and, uh, you know, I think Preston, my friend Preston Pish uh, is, is fond of saying how, you know, like, the, the yields on these stocks make no sense whatsoever, right? Like you, ha you have to hold these stocks for 50 years to get like the amount of dividends that, that would justify buying them. So it doesn't make any sense, but people are still paying for it because there's no good store of value. As, as people recognize Bitcoin as a store of value, a lot of that closer to reality. Uh, and a lot of these firms can ride it out because they're Bitcoinized. A lot of them that aren't, will probably die. A lot of these zombie companies, for example, I think will die a gruesome death, right? Or, or I don't know, maybe they'll fade into oblivion. And that's a very good thing because you, you get more creative destruction. Other companies will come in to take over the role that they had. Um, you know, I, I, I read a statistic about IBM, I think over the past 20 years has done 165 billion in stock buybacks. Their current market cap is like 105 billion, something like that which is like, okay, so, something is really wrong here when that is how money is being spent. Um, with Bitcoin, I, I don't think you get, you get zombie companies like that. Instead, you get much better companies that are dynamic, that are profitable, that are uh, giving retur uh, returns to their investors and so on. Uh, so that, that's probably the path that it will take. Um, you know, the, the asset inflation bubble will come down as the dollar sort of goes into this inflation mode that uh, that I think we're starting to see with lumber, plastics, and aluminum, copper, and all these other raw materials. It'll filter through the economy over the next 20 months or so. Um, but yeah, that, that will be sort of like the beginning of the end for the fiat era. I think the Bitcoin era is coming and we'll have sound money um, and we'll have a better civilization, but it'll get worse before it gets better. That's not an excellent inspiring thought. <laughs> it's not. Uh, there, there's, there's, uh, you know, I, I think uh, my friend Parker Lewis like uh, has this whole series called uh, "Gradually Then Suddenly," and I think that's that's uh, you know how how things tend to collapse is gradual, yeah. then it collapses all of a sudden. Uh, even like the Weimar Republic, I think uh, you know, like it took like six years for prices to double, and then it took like. 12 months to double again. And then it took like three months to double again. It like happens very, very quickly. And by like nine months later, everything was, was done. So um, something like that, I, I, I expect to happen, but exactly when that suddenly starts, I, I can't really tell you. Yeah. Jimmy, what else are you interested in right now? What are you doing uh, that is getting your attention from a technical perspective, from a philosophical perspective? What projects are you interested in? What new implementations uh, or use cases for Bitcoin right now uh, have you intrigued? Yeah, so Sphinx and Lightning Layer 3 have uh, have been on my mind quite a bit. Um, I think there's a lot of businesses that can be built on something like Lightning. So somebody was asking, hey, could you build like a decentralized Uber on something like Sphinx? I'm like, yeah, you actually could. <laughs> like as long as there was enough capacity and once the Lightning Network is a little more, more mature, what you could do is open a room for your particular city, 
like there's no reason why Uber has to be global, right? Like you, you could have local things. You join join that tribe and say, hey, you know what? Like, um, you know, it costs some amount of money to join that tribe. And then you put out and say, uh, put out a, you know, call for, okay, I, I want to go from this place to this place and then get, get automatic bids. Now, you need some sort of interface to do that. And, you know, so somebody needs to write that software and so on. But it's entirely possible that you don't have to have this, um, you know, central entity sitting in the middle capturing a lot of that value. The value could be going towards the driver and so on. Um, and I think that's ultimately what a, a decentralized economy looks like and why maybe a lot of uh, VCs are not quite as enthused because they, they like capturing value. They like companies that capture lots and lots of value for themselves. Um, but in a decentralized economy, there, there's nobody sitting in the middle, like sort of collecting taxes uh, for for themselves. Instead, you um, you know, a lot of the value is in the software uh, and already kind of written, and it goes to the people that are actually performing the work. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm excited about that sort of economy evolving out of uh, out of the Lightning Network. Um, we're not we're nowhere near that yet. Uh, Lightning has a lot of uh, a lot of developing to do. We just had like dual funded channels come online for the first time, like a few days ago. Um, that that allows for um, a more robust network. If we had a lot more of those, um, but you know, it's going to take some time. So. Uh, yeah, it, uh, that that to me, from a philosophical point of view, um, points us towards a more decentralized future, a more direct consumer to consumer um, interaction rather than having a business sit in the middle um, capturing it. Yeah. I know for you that Bitcoin is central to uh, your view of the way the future is going to evolve. I'm curious what your thoughts are uh, about how some of the other functionality that's taking place on other coins and other ecosystems, uh, for example, uh, smart contracts or NFTs and Ethereum, uh, things like Web 3.0 functionality, Filecoin, uh, which is a, a distributed cloud-based uh, storage solution, how some of those uh, applications functionality and ideas might come into the Bitcoin ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if they're really providing that much value. Uh, most of them are justifications to create a token for themselves. Um, and that that to me is, uh, is you know, sort of like a, a, a scammy play. Uh, you know, like you don't you don't need a token. Why aren't you like all all of the things that you mentioned could just as easily be paid for in Bitcoin. And if there were a market for it, then people would buy it and so on. The only reason why they haven't is because there isn't such a demand, right? There, there aren't a bunch of Bitcoiners saying, oh, how can I get free cloud storage right now? Um, you know, because I'm running out of uh, space on my hard drives. They're, they're not saying that at all. Like usually... I mean, you can buy like a 12 gigabyte hard drive for like 150 bucks right now. Like there, there's no need uh, for cloud storage at the moment. I mean, there, there are certainly for businesses, but they want reliability and they go to AWS or Microsoft Azure or something in, in, in order to get it instead of this very shady, um, you know, quote unquote, decentralized coin uh, that you, ha you have to buy and so on. It, it's, it's nowhere near the level of reliability to, for, for them to use it. So really, it's about the token. So for me, none of, the, none of them have really proven out their use case. And, uh, and if they 
were to prove out their use case, generally it's going to be cheaper, more efficient, and faster in a centralized way instead of hmm. having this token sit in the middle. Um, the, the token in this case is the value capture mechanism, or that's usually how they sell it. Uh, the problem is that very few people end up using um, the service because so much of the value is captured by the token. It's not going to the actual providers of the space or whatever. Um, the, and you know, a lot of these business models only work because they're printing their own money. You can you can make almost anything work if you print your own money. Witness the federal government and how inefficient it is, and you know how they're able to do it because they can print their own money. So. Um, yeah, I, uh, like if there is something useful, I think people will build it on Bitcoin. But I suspect that most of it isn't that useful. Um, I mean, smart contracts are in Bitcoin, right? Like they they exist right now in Bitcoin. They've been there since day one. Um, Tell a lot us of people more don't about understand. that. Tell us yeah, more about that. Yeah, people don't understand that addresses are smart contracts, right? Like they're 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 smart contracts saying pay to the hash. Uh, pay. Uh, this is paying to whoever can sign with a private key. Uh, whose public keys hash is this? Something, something to that effect. That, right. That's a smart contract, and every every Bitcoin transaction is executing a smart contract. It's just that people don't know that it's a smart contract because that's not the buzzword that uh, Satoshi chose to uh, to to say. Um, instead, uh, they're enamored with Turing complete smart contracts, which is what Ethereum is all about. But that, of course, makes it a way more vulnerable. What what I say is, it's not necessarily Turing. Uh, it is Turing complete, but that also makes you Turing vulnerable. Uh, this is why you have so many exploits and uh, and and so many errors and so on. Um, starting with the DAO in 2016, all, all the way up to now, you you've had exploit after exploit after exploit because it is extremely difficult to analyze. Uh, you know any Turing complete program um, that's just from computer science. If you have loops, it's it's going it's going to be very very hard to analyze. So. What you get with Bitcoin is a non-Turing complete smart contracts, and that means it's a lot easier to analyze. And this is why you can prove that uh, the security of a Bitcoin smart contract, whereas with almost anything else, they're not interested in security at all. It's just sort of like, okay, well, let's make something fun and interesting, or let's uh, move fast and break things, and you end up breaking people's wallets instead. So uh, for the Bitcoin smart contracts, the capacity to do things like basic conditionals, uh, which is one of the things that people who are involved in the Ethereum space uh, talk about as being so important. Uh, what's your view on that? How will it be implemented in Bitcoin? Well, it's uh, it's already implemented. So you you have a um, so one one of the things Taproot does is it consolidates a lot of the use cases that we've been seeing over the last ten years. Um, you, the original language had a lot of different opcodes. Um, the smart contract language in Bitcoin, it's called script and it has, uh, like 150 different opcodes, uh, which can do various things. Um, and it's a stack based language. So it's a little bit harder to reason about. So Peter Wooler has, uh, has made something called mini script, which is a, uh, a, a way to compile uh, compile another language into script. Um, and it's a lot easier to reason about. And it's based on the use cases that we've seen from people that are actually using Bitcoin. So usually when they're using Bitcoin, they want certain conditions like, okay, I want two of three of these people to sign or three of the five of these people to sign after one year of not being spent, something like that. 
Um, right. That that's uh, pretty hard to write in script, but in mini script, it's a lot easier because of the way the language is designed and it compiles to script. So, um, in a in a sense, they're they're functionally equivalent, but one's a lot easier to reason about, and it makes it a lot easier for programmers to do it. Taproot makes that even easier with this whole mastery um, that that comes as a part of it. Um, and for a programmer, um, that that's great because. Now you can say, okay, here are the conditions under which I want this unlocked. And that's really the main use case for the smart contract. It isn't fancy loops and uh, you know figuring out this or that. Um, uh, and you could do a lot of things with it. Um, another thing that you can do with Bitcoin are something called discrete law contracts, which have been uh, coming more to Bitcoin lately. Um, and, and it's this idea that you, you have an oracle that uh, that you trust, and two people sort of do a contract based on it, um, and it's uh, it's fairly uh, doable in Bitcoin. Um, they, so uh, the one of the companies that I advise, Atomic Finance, they they did this for the election. They said, okay, um, if you want to take Biden or Trump, um, you know, you you can uh, bet on it, and we'll be the oracle for that. And you know, they'll they'll say who won based based on. Uh, you know, it turned out to be a little more complicated than they thought it would be. <laughs> they had to delay the actual payout because, you know, so much of it was uh, was up in the air for a while. Uh, but but by uh, by doing this, you can you can essentially, you know, have different uh, use cases, not just like bets on elections, but Bitcoin based options. Uh, so you can buy a. Uh, uh, buy or sell call options uh, based on a discrete law contract, um, as long as the oracle gives you the correct price of Bitcoin at the at, at the time of execution and so on. So, uh, lots of really interesting um, uh, use cases that that can come out of those, and they're they're already there. A lot of companies are developing it, um, and they're uh, you know uh, a lot of that smart contract stuff is used as a part of Lightning. Uh, with with uh, hash time lock contracts, which are necessary, and so on, they're being used, just not in the uh, in, in the sort of marketing way that Ethereum is, where they um, where you know the, this is one of the fallacies that a lot of people say is, hey, you know, like you know, Bitcoin doesn't even have smart contracts. It's like, okay, you don't understand what smart contracts are, and you don't understand Bitcoin. This is they seem to think that Ethereum invented smart contracts or something. Smart contracts have been around since 1995. Come on, man. Um, so it, it's kind of a very annoying as a technical person to hear sort of lay people say that. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 it's been there. It's being used, and it's going to be wonderful going forward. Yeah. Jimmy, this hour has just flown by. We've touched on a tremendous number of subjects, uh, Austrian economics, the value proposition, the history of Bitcoin, uh, and now into smart contracts. What would you like to leave our viewers with? Well, uh, I know it's alt season and a lot of people are tempted by altcoins right now. Um, I would say uh, look at the long term, right? Uh, and th this is, I, I, I'm sure this is something that you talk about on this channel quite a bit, is what's the long-term value proposition? Uh, and don't just go to the marketing material because the marketing material will tell you one thing, but you, you, you actually have to understand the protocol and how it works in order to make that long-term assessment. If you can't make that long-term assessment, then don't invest in it because that's, that's generally a, a very bad idea. Um, if you can make a long-term assessment, then then you know then go do so. Um, but think five, ten years down the road, um, and 
if you look at Bitcoin in those terms, uh, no one has lost money holding Bitcoin for five years. Um, even the people that bought at the absolute peak last time, $19,000, have made three times their money already. So um, I would say that, uh, you know, thinking long term will do very well. And I, I'm sure you'll come to the same conclusion that Bitcoin is the main thing and all the other stuff is not really worth it. Jimmy Song, always such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.